Good evening. Good evening, and you can uh, find your seats, and then we'll get started, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs, where we've been studying the last few weeks. We are in chapter 5 of the book of Proverbs, and uh, once we got into chapter 2, we've been looking at the rewards of wisdom. That is, all of the good things and the blessings that come into our lives because we employ wisdom. And we've talked about what wisdom is broadly defined, the fear of the Lord. Honoring God, obeying his word. When you use wisdom, those are the things that you do, and then therefore you're rewarded and blessed by God, not because you're worthy, but because you've obeyed the principles of God's word, and obeying God's word and using wisdom brings its rewards. It's a, uh, I guess it's really a, a matter of cause and effect, right? I mean, if you do the right thing, good things happen. If you do the wrong thing, not such good things happen. So it's kind of that law of reaping and sowing, you know. You sow, you reap. It's just the way it is. But as we get into chapter 5 now, we're going to be looking at wisdom instructing us concerning adultery. And I want to start by saying the book is written from a male perspective. That is, Solomon is writing to his sons about many different things employing wisdom in many different areas of their lives, and specifically in this area in chapter 5, comes up again in chapter 7 as well, and is even touched on in chapter 6. This issue of adultery, living a sexually promiscuous life, would be a broader way of looking at it. For one thing, we live in a society today where the rights of men and women are basically equal, at least in principle, and the idea today uh, that men and women are free to make many of the same choices in their lives, good and bad, was foreign to the ancient world. It was quite simply uh, men that made a lot of the decisions, if not all the decisions. And women, if they were involved in this kind of behavior, were on the outskirts of society. So we don't understand that today so much, maybe a few generations ago. But it's important to know as we talk about Solomon speaking to his sons about sexual morality and adultery, that this applies to women as well. It doesn't just apply to men. And I'm going to broadly state that because in our society today especially, it is not just a male-gendered thing to be involved in sexual immorality. So let me say that up front. But as we get into these chapters, we're going to see the rewards of wisdom. If you use God's wisdom, you will be blessed. That is the principle. We'll look at chapters 5, 6, and 7 tonight. Uh, They'll go rather quickly. A lot of this is very self-explanatory. I'm looking forward to making some application, but all of it really speaks to us about obeying God's word. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize and understand that if we apply your word to our lives, that is, we obey it, will be blessed. So we ask for understanding, that your spirit would give us the ability to understand, but also to apply your word to our hearts, that we might be blessed in our lives, that our hearts might belong to you, and that our minds might be pure in an otherwise very wicked world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 5 really is all about the sin of adultery, and warnings and instructions For Solomon's sons concerning adultery, it starts in verses 1 through 6. He writes to his sons, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, 
and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall and sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to Sheol or the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. And so we have wisdom in the book of Proverbs likened unto a woman. We also have folly, foolishness, and specifically this sin, adultery. And it makes sense that the figure or or, uh, character of a woman would be used to exemplify adultery in this culture. Having said that, I remind you that this applies to both genders. Now, here Solomon warns us, all of us, against the adulteress. First of all, verses 1 and 2, listen to wisdom. Listen to wisdom. There's probably nothing more important in this life than listening. And in in addition to listening, listening to the right sources of wisdom, the right information, the right knowledge. And when you listen to the word of God being taught or you read it yourself, you are receiving God's wisdom, which we saw in our last study in this book, is, is priced higher than rubies and diamonds. It's more valuable than silver and gold. For it brings riches because when you apply God's wisdom, you're prosperous, as we saw last time we were together. You're successful. Now, concerning sexual temptation, and that's really what the adulteress represents, sexual temptation. Here we're talking about someone who might otherwise not be involved in sexual morality being seduced or tempted to get involved in illicit sexual behavior, whether that's prostitution or whether that's just uh, promiscuous behavior or aberrant and perverse behavior. It all comes down to not listening to the voices of sexual temptation in our world. Sweet talk and smooth talk are meant to ensnare. And that's the point he makes in verses 3 through 6. Once ensnared in listening to the voices of this world that would seduce you sexually, once ensnared, as it describes here, your heart will be pierced. Like a double-edged sword, your heart is going to be pierced. We, we use the double-edged sword sometimes to describe the word of God. Because that particular weapon was used to pierce. It's a piercing weapon, not a slashing weapon. And so we use the word of God, uh, and we describe it as a double-edged sword. But here, we see that this woman's speech is actually bitter. She's bitter as gall, and and, and her speech and her behavior is sharp as a double-edged sword, a piercing instrument. That is, you're going to end up pierced in the heart because of this type of thinking and this sexual temptation. That's the idea. Once ensnared, your heart will be pierced. And once pierced, you yourself will be dragged into hell. That's what we're, we're learning here, the place of the dead. Your life will become a hell. That's the point. And, and it's important to almost think about it this way. It's like a harpoon, you know? The person gets harpooned, and then, as you well know, the, the harpoon has barbs on it, like an arrowhead only worse. And now the arrow won't come out. And now you can be dragged in to ensnarement because you've been pierced. So the idea would be to stay clear of it so that you don't get pierced, so that you don't get dragged into hell, if you will, as it's described here, Sheol. So understanding it that way, it is a warning not to be ensnared 
in sexual immorality by the temptation of sexual immorality. He also, though, warns them against corruption because when you allow yourself to be corrupted by this or any sin, bad things happen. You lose out. Corruption corrupts your soul, your spirit. It causes you to become a person that is perverse and no longer wise and no longer good, but corrupt. And so we read in verses 7 through 14, Now then, my sons, listen to me, Solomon begs. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. That is the sexual temptation described as the adulteress. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. See, when I read that, I think it's a great warning because essentially what Solomon is saying to his sons, if you, if you chase after illicit sexual behavior, in this case, a man going after a woman, eventually things are going to go bad. And when they do, you yourself are going to end up giving all that you have, your best years, your strength, to someone who's going to end up leaving you destitute and broken. I think of many of the people I've known over the years, unfortunately as a pastor, who have gotten caught up in adulterous relationships. People who are married, and they somehow convince themselves or allow themselves to be convinced that getting involved in an adulterous relationship outside of their marriage is somehow going to enhance their life. Now, I assume they were thinking that because why else would you do it, right? I mean, I don't think people who get involved in adulterous relationships wake up in the morning and say, hmm, how can I destroy my life and my family? They somehow are convinced by the smooth talk and whatever it is, their own mind, their wicked heart, that the best thing for them to do is to step outside their, their, their marriage sexually, step away from their family, betray their wives or their husbands and, and their family, and that somehow that is going to enrich their lives. But the truth of the matter is that they oftentimes either convince themselves that they'd be better off getting a divorce or get caught, or something happens where now their life is in disarray. And I can't tell you the number of times I've sat and had conversations with people, Christians, who have in fact allowed this to happen in their lives, and their lives are destroyed. Sometimes their marriages and their families can be healed and mended, but oftentimes, most of the time, they cannot be. And it's sad, but to be honest, I'm one of those guys that, like, I have compassion for certain people. I have compassion for a lot of people. But if you picked up a, you know, 44 and you loaded it and you held it to your head and you pulled the trigger, it's hard for me to really find compassion because you did this to yourself. Now, I, I'm not saying I'm not sympathetic to people who have problems, but, you know, there are people who are victims in this world, and then there are people who bring it on themselves. And I find it just my own nature, my own character, a little hard to be sympathetic to someone who made a choice that destroyed their family. I, I kind of, there's a part of me, maybe it's the Sicilian part of me that says, well, you're getting what you deserve. You, you asked for it, you got it. Is this what you wanted? You had to know it was wrong, especially if they're Christians. 
And I've seen it over and over again. And the perils of being corrupted, and that's what happens when you give yourself over to any sin. You become corrupted by it. And after a while, you don't care if it's wrong. You want it anyway. And now that you're corrupted, it describes it here in verses 7 through 10. The loss of your best strength and many cruel years. I remember speaking to one individual who, as a consequence of their being unfaithful, uh, had their, their incomes greatly reduced with child support and alimony and the many things that were required. And now the person who was once quite wealthy was now not so wealthy. And there are people that repeat this process over and over again to the point that really all they're doing now is working and their pay is garnished and all they're doing is working to, to cover the expenses of their dependents and their ex-wives or their ex-husbands. And the funny thing is, they're doing all that work and all it does is go to others. And so I, I think, and, and that's not the way it's supposed to be, but that's what ends up happening. So the loss of your best strength, because now you're working just to pay for your sins, essentially, in this life, and many cruel years. And the loss of your wealth, the, the benefits of your labor, they don't come to you anymore because you have played the fool, and now you got the bill. And that's exactly the truth of what happens in these situations. Ultimately, according to verses 11 through 14, you're going to lament your ruin for ignoring wisdom. Ultimately. At the end of your life, it says, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent, and you will say, how I hated discipline, that is instruction, how my heart spurned correction, and I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. And notice in verse 14, I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly in the community. I destroyed my life. And I'm telling you, Without exception, everyone that I've seen that has traveled this path, whether male or female, comes to the point where they basically say this, and not so many words, but they say, I've ruined my life. I've ruined my life. How sad. Why? Because you couldn't follow the advice of wisdom in the book of Proverbs that says, stay away from this. The voice of the adulteress, stay away from sexual temptation. Don't give in to it. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's difficult in our world today. And it is. It is. I admit there's a, a loud screaming voice out there that would try to seduce you to get involved in illicit sexual behavior. One of the ways that you and I, who are married, those of us who are married, and, and, and by the way, to commit adultery as a single person would mean that you were involved with a married person, right? But if you're single, it's not the same as committing adultery as a married person. However, let me be clear. Illicit sexual behavior can be uh, experienced by anyone. A single person would be described as a fornicator, a married person as an adulterer. Beyond that, there's very little difference except the collateral damage, if you will. There's collateral damage that is greater in the case of an adulterous relationship because of the commitments, the family, the marriages, But having said that, there's still damage that happens in people's lives. But speaking specifically about adultery, wisdom would encourage us toward marital faithfulness. You see, the Bible is replete with examples of the fact that marriage was given to man and woman so that they don't have to behave this way. I can't tell you. I mean, now, I'm I'm speaking mostly at this point about unbelievers who are not Christians. But I can't tell you how it grieves me and how many people I see in the world whose whole pursuit in life is sexual gratification. 
to the extent that they don't want to get married. They just want to go from one person to the other and live like this, trying to achieve some sense of happiness, perhaps, or affirmation, or I don't know what. They seem to think that they can find fulfillment in life in behaving this way. But the Bible tells us that the way to truly find fulfillment, relationally, sexually, physically, is to be married and to stay faithful. Amen? That's what the Bible tells us about this. You can disagree with that. You may not believe it, but it's still true. And so we read in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 5 in the book of Proverbs, in a very poetic way, saying it without saying it, so to speak, he essentially says, only get involved sexually with a person you're married to. For he says here in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. A cistern was where they would catch rainwater, a runoff, and uh, it was provided drinking water. But drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always, and may you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? And it's such a good question. Why? Why? You can see when, when you're sober and when you're clear-minded and you know Jesus Christ, and, 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 and perhaps if you're married or not, you can see the wisdom, right? Obviously, you can see the wisdom of behaving this way and living this way. And yet so many people, they just take that wisdom and for either, either for a moment or for a night, for some chapter in their life, for whatever reason, they decide the rules do not apply to them. And so they go ahead and they make terrible decisions, and the consequences are life-changing, damaging, and devastating, not only to them, but to their spouses and to their families, all of their families. You know, we all have experienced this, I'm sure. I'm sure you, like me, have siblings and family members who've been married multiple times, and it, it grieves it, it, it grieves the heart when families are broken. Sometimes those marriages fail because of unfaithfulness. Sometimes they fail for other reasons. But here's the truth. It is devastating to a family when marriages are destroyed and families are corrupted. It's devastating even to the people not directly involved. The relatives or the in-laws even of these people feel that devastation that comes when This wisdom is not adhered to when it's not followed. So here the Bible is encouraging us toward marital faithfulness and away from unfaithfulness. Be satisfied with God's provision and protect your marriage. That's essentially what's being said here in a poetic way. Fully enjoy the blessings of God's provision in your marriage, but don't forfeit the blessings of God's provision through adultery. Don't step outside of God's prescribed relationship for sexual fulfillment. It is that simple. I think we can all see that. But if it were that simple for people to obey that wisdom and follow that wisdom, I wouldn't be sharing the things that I'm sharing with you tonight. Sadly, we oftentimes disregard wisdom and suffer for it. Now, 
The other thing that he warns his children, specifically his sons concerning in verse 21, he warns them against destruction. And destruction is what you do when you don't obey wisdom and you defy it and you disobey God's word. Look at verse 21. He says here, For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly or foolishness. And that's the destruction that we've been talking about. God sees all those things that we think we do in secret. That's one of the greatest deterrents. First of all, be faithful to your spouse. That should be a significant motivator not to get involved in this type of behavior. But even beyond that, maybe greater to that, is that God sees all those things that we think we do in secret. So if you are being unfaithful, you're flirtatious, or you're just engaging in really inappropriate behavior, God sees that. He knows that. So if you live circumspectly before God, if you live in such a way you know God is watching you and sees you and you desire to please God, that is like a shield around you. It will protect you. You know, it's funny. I'm going to use an example because I happened to put this shirt on tonight. And uh, I think Rich, Rich got these shirts. But uh, it says John 3.16 on here. And it also has some scripture on the back, right? Nice shirt. But it's interesting. And I'm sure you've experienced this. When I wear this shirt, it's like I've got to be on my best behavior. If I'm in the Costco wearing this shirt and somebody bangs their cart into me, I have to be really nice to them anyway, right? If, if, I'm, at, if I'm at a restaurant and somebody, like, you know, is acting inappropriately, I have to remember I'm wearing this shirt. Now, I say that jokingly because it's not as if I'm a completely different person if I wear a different shirt. But it's interesting because I've noticed that when I have a shirt like this on, right? I'm more cognizant of the fact that people are looking at me, recognizing that I'm clearly a Christian. How is my behavior going to weigh against what I say I believe? And that's what's good about shirts like this. Or a bumper sticker, perhaps, on your car. Talks about loving Jesus. It's really hard to flip somebody the bird in traffic if you have a bumper sticker on the back of your car that says something about Jesus and God is love, right? Let's be honest. And yet, if we live circumspectly before God, that is, we know God is watching, greater than mankind watching, God is watching, it really shouldn't matter what shirt we wear because we know God sees it all. Amen? That's the point I'm trying to make. Trying to use an example that might drive home the point. God sees all those things that we think we do in secret. So even if you wore a shirt that had, you know, Mets or Giants on it or had nothing to do, with God or his word, still God sees your behavior. He does. And I can't tell you how many times people will see me wearing a shirt like this or this shirt and say, oh, I really like your shirt. And that's usually a way for them to suggest, you know, hey, look, I'm a Christian too. And that's a good thing. We should live our lives like that, with or without the shirt. We don't need badges and name tags to tell people we're Christians. The Bible says they'll know you by your fruit, right? The fruit, our love one for another. Amen? And God allows us to experience the consequences of sin. Don't think for a minute, and we see that here in verses 22 through 23, don't think for a minute that just because you're a Christian that you won't experience the consequences of sin. You will. You will. All right. Well, that gets us through chapter 5, which 
taught us and has, and has taught us that wisdom instructs us concerning adultery and staying away from the adulteress and being faithful in our marriages. Wisdom tells us how to stay uncorrupted, how to keep our lives from being destroyed. So why wouldn't you listen? Then we get into chapter 6, and here wisdom instructs us concerning many sins, including adultery, many things that we should avoid. Now, here's the thing. If you and I, if we listen to God's word and apply God's word, we're going to be rewarded. We're going to be blessed. We're also going to avoid a lot of the consequences of sin that come into the life of a person who doesn't listen to wisdom. For example, let's look at verses 1 through 5. Solomon writes, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, like co-signing for a loan, or using your credit for someone else to borrow money as a way of thinking of it, right? You guys are all familiar with your credit score, right? Most people are nowadays because it matters. It really does. It matters. If you try to rent an apartment nowadays, they do a credit check, right? You got to have a good credit score. Who wants to rent to someone with a bad credit score? If you want to get a car loan or a mortgage, there's so many times now where your credit score really, really matters. In fact, what type of loan, what type of interest you'll pay. Even insurance rates sometimes are based to some degree on your credit score. That's something that may have been foreign to us 20, 30 years ago, but it isn't today. We go online, we check our score. We work hard to make sure it's a good credit score. So my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands in pledge for another If you have been trapped by what you said and snared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go and humble yourself. Press your plea with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. A fowler was a person that caught birds with traps. Get out! If you got yourself into a potentially dangerous and detrimental situation concerning your credit, get out. What that means is if you've co-signed a loan for someone, don't do it. And if you have, get yourself out of that situation. Extricate yourself as much as you can. Now, let me say something. Many parents will co-sign loans for their children. I don't think we're necessarily talking about that, to be honest, to be frank. Parents make decisions like that, and when they make that decision, it's different because that parent is saying, well, if they can't pay the loan, I will. But that's exactly what you're saying when you co-sign a loan. You're saying, if this person I'm standing as pledge for, this person that I'm putting my credit on the line for can't pay it, I'm going to pay it. So unless you're willing to pay off the whole loan, don't do it. I strongly recommend, and it comes up over and over again in the book of Proverbs, that you never lend anyone money. Now, that's not even me. That's just biblical. Oh, Pastor Tim, how can you say that? If you have an issue where you want to help somebody, give them the money. Give them what you can, but don't lend them anything. It never ends well. It never does. It just never ends well. I'm sorry. I've seen it over and over again. And the book of Proverbs teaches us this, and it bears out in life. The thing we're learning here is don't make foolish commitments, specifically financial commitments. Don't do it. Don't proudly jeopardize your financial security for another. Don't use your credit and give that power to someone else to destroy your credit. Humbly seek to free yourself from foolish commitments that you've already made immediately, immediately. Now, we all know probably the dangers of identity theft. Some of you have experienced it. 
And if it's not handled properly, thankfully now there are ways to handle this with credit companies. And But if you don't handle it properly, your credit can be affected. And that's something you didn't want. That's something you didn't ask for. Anyone who's experienced that, their credit damage through identity theft, knows that the dangers of what can happen in those situations. So why would you give that information to somebody? I mean, essentially, when someone has you signed for a loan, it, it, again, unless you're saying, I'm going to pay if they can't, like a parent says for their child or someone very close to you, what you're doing is you're saying, oh, here's my social security number. Here's my financials. Go ahead. I trust you not to ruin my life. So you might want to think twice. How about this one, laziness? This is, this is one of those things that ranks up there at the top of the things I have no tolerance for. I grew up in this area. I grew up right across the river in East Rutherford. Working class neighborhood. My dad on his side of the family, first one to go to college. So Italian immigrants, working class. Uh, we, we weren't handed anything. We worked hard for everything we have. And I can tell you I was taught at a young age, you don't work, you're not going to be successful. It's just that simple. I don't understand this sort of victimhood where everybody's against you and you should be receiving things that somehow you didn't earn. I don't understand it. You can argue that it's good or bad. I can just tell you I don't understand it because the way I was taught, the way I was raised, you work hard, you get ahead. Oh, but pastor, some people need a handout. No, nobody needs a handout. A hand up, maybe. I was given opportunities. I remember saying to my boss one time, oh, you know, Kathy was her name. I said, Kathy, you know, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity. She said, no, thank you, because I can't tell you how many people don't make the most of opportunities. And the Bible tells us to make the most of every opportunity in, in spiritual ways. But that is a principle, being industrious, not being lazy, so important. In fact, let's read what it says, verses 6 through 11, chapter 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. I like that. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard, and play video games? No, that's not in there. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Oh, you got to love the book of Proverbs. Says it all. Laziness. Learn from the ant. Now listen, I was installing a patio last week, and there are these ants. There are many different types of ants, by the way. You get your carpenter ants. You got all these little tiny little ants. There's pavement ants. They really don't bother anybody. They don't technically do any damage, but they love to live under pavers. They love to live under sidewalks. And as I was out there working alongside our patio, <coughs> I noticed a lot of ants, a lot of them. They are working furiously all summer. Think about that. They're working while they can so that when they can't, they have what they need. And Solomon says, consider that. Think about that. There are like Aesop's fables. I think it was the ant and the grasshopper was one of them. But here we say, look at the ant. Think about that. You, you, everybody sees them all over the place. They're constantly working. How about you? Now, being a workaholic is one thing. But being industrious is another. And there are far too few people in this world who are industrious. Most people, they just want to either get out of school or get a job and be wealthy. 
That's not how it worked for me. I don't know about you. I can remember just struggling, and many of you have struggled far worse than I have, to get to where I am today. And it didn't happen because it fell out of the sky. My dad used to love to say, I'm sure you heard it, right? Money doesn't grow on trees. Oh, I hated when he said that. I'd ask for five. You know, money doesn't grow on trees. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking you for it. My dad made sure we had everything we needed, but let me tell you, one thing that didn't happen is fives flying out of his wallet. I caution you, every time you give your child something like that without having earned it, you run the risk of teaching them the wrong lesson. Laziness is a problem in our culture today. Most people don't want to work. Diligently working is the most important thing you can do to be successful. Diligently work to avoid the fruit of laziness, which is poverty. So I look at our world today, and I look at poverty, and it's true. Certain groups of people in certain parts of the country from certain ethnic groups have greater or less opportunity. It's true. It is. So, so what? Are you doing the very best with the opportunities that you have? Don't ask for a rigged system. Work hard. And you might have to work harder than somebody that's different than you. And so what? That's the way this game works. Those are the rules of Monopoly. You don't collect $200 until you pass go. You, you know, you can't fix the rules with reparations and all sorts of incentives to work. It has to come to this. Do you want to eat? Do you want to be successful? Then you have to get a job and you have to work. And this goes for privileged children as well. I think it's the most important lesson you can teach your children to be industrious, Avoid the fruit of laziness. It is poverty. Thomas Alva Edison said it this way. Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. Thomas Edison. So I would think about that. How about this? In verse 12, we now talk about the sin of deception. In verse 12, we read, A scoundrel and a villain go about with a corrupt mind. A scoundrel and villain who goes about with a corrupt mind, who winks with his eye, signals with his feet, motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Now, what that is telling us is that those that gain by deceiving others, cheaters, liars, thieves, they create many enemies. Have you noticed? Let me ask you a question. If you hired a contractor and the contractor did a really good job and I come to you and I say, Robert, do you know any good contractors? Are you going to tell me who that contractor is? Of course you are. But what if the inverse is true? What if you bring somebody in, they don't do a good job, they rip you off, they don't finish the job or they do a horrible job or they're just terrible people to deal with and I say, Do you know any good contractors? You're going to say, absolutely not, I don't. I can tell you that. In fact, you might go so far as to say, and I'm going to sue my contractor because he was so terrible. You see, those that deceive others create many enemies. Eventually, they pile up. Those enemies start to to gather, and in the ancient world, it could ultimately end with you being destroyed. Eventually, those same enemies would exact their swift and their just revenge. So that's what we're being told here. If you live as a cheat, as a thief, as as, a person who deceives others, it will catch up with you, and that's just good wisdom. And then we learn about what's described as seven detestable sins. 
in verses 16 through 19. And then we're given a list, and they're self-explanatory. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, that's a proud person. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, that would be murderers. A heart that deceives wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies like a perjurer. A man and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. That is, home wreckers, people who destroy relationships, divide families. All of those things are in the same category with murderers and liars and thieves. God hates these things. And now we're back to the real incentive for not doing them. You don't just not do them because you might get caught or you might suffer the consequences in this life. You don't do these things because wisdom tells you God hates these things. Why would you do something that you know God hates? Why would you do that? Very simple question. I don't think anyone has a good answer. Unless you say you wouldn't. And then we get back to this issue of adultery. We come around around the circle here to the end of uh, the chapter. And in chapter 6, verse 20, we'll just read verses 20 through 29. This is all about adultery again. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you wake, when you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. That's a very severe warning. But it's an encouragement to obey the instruction of wisdom. It will protect you from temptation and adultery. It will prevent the certain punishment that comes to an adulterer. And compare now with me, if you will, Joseph's use of wisdom to David's sin of adultery. They were both in somewhat similar situations. David with Bathsheba, Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Slightly different situation, but still the point is the same. Joseph ran so quickly he left his cloak behind. David, on the other hand, did not. And you can see immediately, now this is Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, writing these Proverbs. And he didn't always follow good wisdom either, especially later in life. But Joseph did, and he was blessed as a consequence. So if you want to be a Joseph, you might have to run. If you want to be a David, then hang out on roof, on the roof, looking at your neighbor. You know, if you want to end up destroying your life, that's the way to do it. And that's what we see in those two lives. But you know, there is no mercy for an adulterer and no proper way to make amends. And that's borne out in verses 30 through 35. Notice, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yeah, if you had some food 
and someone, you caught someone stealing it and they were half starved to death, you might be inclined to say, look, don't bother stealing it, I'll give it to you. You would have compassion in your heart for some situation like that, I'm sure. Most of us would. Yet if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold. That is, you know, the law demanded that if you're caught stealing, you had to pay the consequences. Though it cost him all the wealth of his house. You had to make uh, recompense. You had to, you had to compensate the person sevenfold for what you stole. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. Because, of course, you're talking about an inflamed passion now. No one's going to be able to... to calm that person down. They're going to want to wring the person's neck in that situation. And we've all probably read stories or heard accounts of people who have actually murdered individuals because their spouse was involved in an adulterous relationship. It happens. You can understand. They call that second-degree murder, but it's still murder. Not that the person's innocent. It's not the same, but hey, it's still murder. That's what you can be reduced to, a person can be reduced to, and that's the warning here. You could very well end up shot dead or killed for behaving in this way. It's not like stealing a loaf of bread. I think we all understand the lesson. It's pretty clear. There is no mercy for an adulterer, no proper way to make amends. And so the warning from Solomon to his sons. Now we get into chapter 7, and we'll close with this chapter. Here we're back to the subject of the adulteress. And again, it's all about sexual temptation, really about living a life that's upright before God. But here now we're given some practical wisdom. This is a little different than just straightforward wisdom. This is sort of a, uh, an examples and applications so that we can understand the truth that we've already studied. And here we read in verses 1 through 5, <coughs> in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1, My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. That's that your pupil. The very delicate, soft, and and very vulnerable part of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. Wisdom will protect you. That's the idea. Wisdom is our great defense against adultery and all sin, but especially adultery. So if you tell me that someone was involved in an adulterous relationship, is it a fair deduction to say that they were very foolish? The Bible says so. You are a fool. And I would be inclined to basically tell someone that if they were caught in an adulterous relationship. I would say you are a fool because the Bible says you are, and it's still true. But there are three things, and here we're not just talking about proverbs and sayings. Now we're given the practical way to actually apply wisdom, and it's threefold if you're taking notes. The first is this. Look at verse 1. Keep my words and store up my commands within you. Now, how do you do that? Well, you have to memorize God's word. The only way that God's word is going to be within you is if you memorize the word and put it in your heart. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Right? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
That's in the Psalms, Psalm 119. You have to put God's word into your heart. Now, what that means is into your soul. It goes through the mind. Memorizing God's word. You don't need to memorize the book of Job, but it might be helpful to memorize a few scriptures in the areas that you're struggling with so that when you do struggle with that sin, those scriptures can immediately come to mind. So the first thing Solomon says, memorize God's word. Memorize it. Memorize it. Second thing, guard God's word in your heart. Not only place it there, but protect it. Guard it. Look at verse 2. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings. Notice, as the apple of your eye. When you guard your eyes, there's something instinctual within us to cover our faces. I don't know if you know that. But uh, in martial arts, we, we, we learn about our instinctual reactions to conflict and to, to, to combat. And one of the things you're almost always going to do is put your hands up in front of your face to protect your eyes and to protect your face. And in martial arts, we use that to get into position. But still, the point is when your hands are up here, you're protecting yourself. It's instinctual. If something's coming at your face, you're going to cover your eyes. You're going to cover your face. That's called wisdom, guarding your eyes. And that's what we're told to do. Just like the way you guard your face and you guard your eyes, the the vulnerable parts of who you are, that's what you need to do. You need to guard God's word in your heart. Guard it. Protect God's word in your heart. Make sure it stays there. How do you do that? Not just memorizing God's word, applying God's word. Studying God's word, reading God's word, making sure that God's word becomes a part of you. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because here you are on a Wednesday night doing that very thing. But keep doing it. Don't stop. Third and finally, keep God's word close to you always. Look at verses 3 through 5. Bind them on your fingers. Now the Jews have taken this quite literally and, and they use phylacteries and this is used even today among some of the more orthodox sects of Judaism. They'll literally bind scripture in a little box around their hands and on their head and they'll have it on their bodies. Now here's the thing. That's all well and good, but that's not what it means. Tying God's word to your body is not going to help. I remember I had a conversation with a man many, many years ago and he was a full bird colonel in the Marine Corps. And I remember sharing the gospel with him, and his response to me is, I have a King James Bible in my desk. And I thought, that's great. Have you read it? I have a King James Bible in my desk. Well, that's great. Have you read it? But I have a King James Bible in my desk. That was his defense or his response to my suggesting he open that Bible. Binding God's word to your fingers and putting it on your head might look a little ridiculous. I know it's cultural, but if it's not in your heart and in your mind, it's of no use. I know that's an outward sign of something that hopefully has taken place inwardly, but please understand, you need to keep God's word close to you always. The best way is to memorize it, but listen, you're not going to memorize the whole Bible, so keep your Bible with you. Now, we have it made because most of you guys have phones or tablets, and I assume you've probably downloaded some type of Bible app. You might have a few of them. So good, the word of God is right where it needs to be until there's a power outage, so that's why you're going to need paper. But keep God's word close to you always. Notice, treat the word of God and wisdom from the word of God as your sister, as your kinsman, because it's going to protect you. It's going to keep you from these sins. Now, this is 
kind of my favorite part of the study tonight. In verses 6 through 9, we see foolishness acted out. This is to help us to understand how important it is to apply wisdom. Look at the foolishness acted out. Here's what Solomon says, and I believe this probably happened. At the window of my house, I looked through the lattice, and I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Now, right, right off the bat, that kind of says that this person's looking for a problem, looking for trouble. People didn't venture out at night in those days unless it was an absolute emergency. But we see Solomon observes a fool who's totally unprepared to face temptation, literally putting himself in a compromising situation. Now, listen, I'm going to say this because it's so important. If you don't want to eat donuts, don't go to Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme or to the bakery aisle at the supermarket. You understand, right? Oh, pastor, I just can't stop eating donuts. Well, where do you get your coffee, Dunkin' Donuts? Maybe not. Maybe go to some other place. Maybe don't walk into a donut shop if you don't want to always be eating donuts. You see my point? I've said it in a nice way. If you keep putting yourself in a situation where you're tempted, of course you're going to fall. Of course you are. So what do you need to do? You need to be prepared to face temptation. I believe in this scenario here that's being acted out and observed. We're seeing a guy walking in the direction of trouble, knowing that he is, hoping he'll find some. You know, I can remember growing up right here again in East Rutherford, we would get in one of our cars, you know, a couple of us were lucky enough to have some old beater cars back in the 80s, and we would get in a car and we would drive around looking for trouble. Whatever trouble we might find. We weren't looking for good, right? We were looking for trouble. So sometimes we actually found some. And I often wonder, would we have gotten in trouble if we didn't get in the car at least at all or didn't get in the car looking for trouble? So many times that's us. We get on the internet looking for trouble. We, we look at movies looking for trouble, hoping to find it. Uh, we go to maybe places we shouldn't go. I often think of people who go to a bar and then, you know, a week later, call up their pastor and say, oh, pastor, I fell into sin. When did this happen? Well, last night. No, it happened the day you decided to walk into a bar. Now, listen, let me be clear. There are restaurants that serve alcohol. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a place that is designed for you to fall into sin, like the adulteress's door. Okay? So understand something. Solomon observes a, a fool totally unprepared to face temptation. And then he observes the adulteress. Look at verse 10. Then out came a woman to meet him. Notice, to meet him. Implication that this thing was sort of prearranged. Dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home 
until full moon. Temptation. It may not always act this way. It's pretty accurate. But this is pretty much it. Someone goes out looking for trouble and they find it. And then they wonder why they fall into the adulteress's lap. Now, her call, she's actually calling in the street. And her call is contrasted with the call of wisdom that we saw in chapter 1. Wisdom was a woman in the street crying out for people to listen to her. Here you have another woman, by contrast, crying out for people to fall into sin with her. So it comes down to who we listen to and who we choose to obey. Wisdom or foolishness? The adulteress or wisdom? And she pretends to be spiritual, too. She feigns spirituality. Oh, I've made my, my offerings, I, my fellowship offerings. When you made a fellowship offering, you went to the temple you, or the tabernacle, and you made your offering, and you came home with a portion of the sacrifice. So you had dinner. So she's inviting him to dinner. But, oh, yes, she went to the, the tabernacle. She, she went to the temple. She was in church on Sunday. But now she's looking to drag someone into sin for her own enrichment. Her methods are fleshly. Her methods are obvious. And this poor fool is heading into the grave. And notice we read in verse 21, he observes this fool being taken captive. And this this plays out over and over again in life, even today. Verse 21, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. And that is so accurate. Like an animal being trapped to be eaten is the person who gives themselves over to sexual immorality. Finally, in verses 24 through 27, wisdom warns us of the fate of those that succumb to this sin. Verse 24, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. So quite a lot of encouragement to live lives according to God's wisdom and not allow ourselves to be destroyed by our desires, in this case, sexual desires, or other desires or other sins that we've looked at briefly this evening. Wisdom warns us of the fate of those that succumb to this sin. This was quite obviously Solomon's greatest weakness. And many times you can learn the most from a person who failed at that thing the most. See, you might say to someone, who are you to teach me about sexual sin? Look, you destroyed your life. Exactly. Sometimes the person who suffered the most because of their mistakes is the best teacher that you can have. Sometimes hearing their testimony is enough to warn you off the path to destruction. And I suspect, regarding Solomon, that this observation is autobiographical. I believe that what he's describing here for us actually happened, and it was him. He was the youth. He was the fool. And I'm sure many of us can relate. But it's never too late to employ wisdom, to apply wisdom to our hearts and to our lives. And I would ask the Lord to give us wisdom, all that we need to obey his word. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.
Thank you for the wisdom you give to us. Thank you for the warnings of your word. May each and every one of us take them seriously, apply them to our hearts, and live our lives for you. And of course, Lord, the wisest thing we can do, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, is to revere you, to worship you, to recognize that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day to give us newness of life, that he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that too many has received them to those that believed on his name. He gave them the right to be called the children of God. May each and every one of us be your children by faith as we cry out to you and ask for you to be our Lord and Savior and save us from ourselves, save us from the consequences of sin, and give us the wisdom we need to live our lives for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.